Well, good morning, church. It is good to see you here on Palm Sunday, and I hope that you're being blessed already as we have, have we come before the Lord in worship and praise and just focused on the cross and what it does for us. I hope that you are also not only passing out the book, The Cross, at the cross, remember, this is the book that we ask you to give away. We don't have any more hard copies of it for you to give away. Um, and so if you did not get one to read or to give it away, you can go to our webpage, and right on the top of our, our webpage, where the first thing you'll find there is a download for the ebook, and you can, you can download this and you can read it. Uh, this week, <clears throat> we're, at, we're reading chapter four. Four individuals who ended up at the cross. We've been looking at them for the past three weeks. This week, I'm asking you to read chapter four. Chapter four is that that convicted criminal, that thief at the cross. There were actually two. One will be very much like some of the people that we might talk about in the sermon this morning. The other was one who repented and trusted Jesus to be a savior. As you read that short chapter, you're going to find three really important truths about salvation. Three things that your neighbors and your friends your family members, perhaps, need to know about salvation. So I encourage you to give that book away or encourage them to download it and read it uh, themselves. And so At the Cross, what a, what a wonderful little book. I hope that it has meant something to you. Also, don't forget to read You at the Cross. It's not really a chapter. It just follows the, the last chapter. It's just three or four little pages. But we looked at four other individuals at the cross. What about when we stand there? And so read that and encourage that person you give it to, to read it to, okay? And um, that being said, um, next Sunday is what? Easter Sunday, that's right. And so in your ministry guide today, you'll find another invitation to Easter Sunday. You also um, have those in that book that you've given away already, but there's some more and there's more out in the foyer if you want to pick them up on your way out. He's still alive. Jesus is still alive. That's our focus next week. This morning is Communion Sunday, and so as you came in, hopefully you were given uh, your elements, uh, the cup with the little wafer on top of it. If you did not get one, if you raise your hand, we'll make sure you get one right now so that you're ready at the end of the service. Okay, it looks like everybody got one. Good job. Communion stuff, give her out her. We appreciate that. Um, Let's bow in prayer as we come to God's word now, as we ask God to just, just just envelop this room with his spirit. Father, as we come into your presence now through prayer once again, we want to thank you for your glory, for the glory that was shown in Jesus Christ, for the way that he was able to glorify your name by what he did at the cross, by the way that our lives can glorify you, by how we choose to live as believers. Now, Father, we pray that as we come into your presence uh, through your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would just move and work, that he would be poured out into all of our hearts and lives. Father, we pray for those places where we need conviction, conviction of, of our sin, conviction of our unfaithfulness, conviction where we are, where we're maybe skeptical right now. And Father, we pray that you would meet us in all those places with all those needs. We pray that you would be with our sister Myrna, whose who's, um, mother passed away this past Friday evening. We pray that you would just, would just care for her, that you would wrap her in your arms of love. We thank you, Father, for your grace that is sufficient for all aspects of our lives, even when we face the death of someone that we dearly love. And Father, we pray for those who are struggling right now in hospitals, uh, who are in our church family. We pray that you would touch their lives, that you'd continue to bring healing where it is needed. And Father, we just want to tell you in advance that we love you and we thank you for what you're going to do. Father, we pray now that you would, that you would speak boldly for your word. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, <clears throat> immerse the reading Bible. Um, this is, this is our, our small group, our, our growth group um, activity for this past quarter, and we are now in the final week. For those of us who have Monday night classes, <clears throat> if you haven't finished, you've got till tomorrow at 6.15. So if you're like back over here somewhere on page 30, you've got a lot of reading to do. 
Okay, so, so I hope that you've been blessed. I've been hearing a lot of good stories about what is God's doing in your life and how exciting you're finding that. Um, and so that means that this, this sermon series I'm doing is coming to an end because I've been doing one sermon a week based on what we've been reading or what we will read, I should say. And so this past week, our final week, we were in, in the Gospel of John, the last third of the quarter or so of the, of the Gospel of John, and then we were at in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then we were in the book of Revelation. And uh, Barbara and I finished the book of Re Revelation yesterday. I, was, I sat down to read at my desk, and she came by and she said, ha ha, I won. <laughs> I didn't know it was a race, but I lost it anyway. Um, so so uh, we're done that. And you say, well, are, what are we gonna do again? Well, uh, this fall, we're going to be doing part two uh, and and uh, remember, this is not necessarily chronological reading, but we're going to be doing beginnings. Beginnings. We're going back to the beginning of the Bible, beginning of time. We're going back to Genesis, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and we'll be reading those. So be watching for that. You'll, we'll have the books available for you sometime later uh, this summer, and, and you can get into a growth group. Um, by then, who knows? We might be able to be in homes rather than on Zoom. And we can, you know, wouldn't you like just to be able to just kind of get rid of Zoom, throw it out the back window? But, uh, but we're not going to do that quite yet. So anyway, that's what we're doing. So take out your Bibles, if you would. And um, I know there's, you know, John, 1st John, 2nd John, 3rd John, and then, and then the whole book of Revelation, and I had to pick one place to preach out of. And so I'm not even going to touch Revelation right now. Um, because we could only just scratch the surface, but there's a passage that God just laid on my heart. Uh, even as I started, I, I've laid out all these sermons way beforehand. I'm already working on the ones for beginning now um, for next fall, but, but the one that God laid on my heart today was found in John chapter 20. So turn your Bibles to John chapter 20. If you are using this Bible, uh, you're going to find that in um, uh, John chapter 20, but because there's no sermon, uh, there's no there's no. There's no um, chapters or verses that are listed. You're on page number 300, uh, 435, page 435. You'll find where we're at in paragraph 9. Uh, over the, we're talking about today, as we immerse ourselves in God's word, um, a crash course, if you will, on dealing with doubt. On dealing with doubt. Over the years, over the 40-some the years that I've been pastoring, um, there are a lot of times when people will just ask me questions, or I will, in a, in, a, in a small group, I will ask a question, have people respond on maybe a piece of paper, uh, so it's kind of anonymous, but just to ask them um, questions um, that may be about some of the doubts they have, or they'll come to me in, with doubts. And, and the doubts sometimes in the questions are, are phrased something like this, Pastor, is God, is God is, he, is he real? Um, have I sinned too much that he can't save me? Pastor, is my life ever going to make sense? Um, you know, all those kinds of questions come up. Um, you know, is, is the Bible true? As we've read through the New Testament, people have come up and they said, is this really true? As we're reading in the Old Testament, as some people are reading the Bible through this year from beginning to end, and they've been going through the book of Leviticus, and they say, is all that stuff true? Are all those sacrifices real? And so those are, those are, those are honest questions, and there's nothing wrong with having honest questions, and I, and I find those all the time. Um, and so at one time or another, I'm convinced that every person comes to a point, no matter who they are, no matter how long they've been saved, there are times in their lives when doubt sneaks in. When doubt comes in and you say, um, I'm not sure about that. I, I thought I believed it, now do I believe it still? Or, or I never believed that, but should I believe it? Uh, for example, maybe, maybe you grew up in a, in a Christian home, and if you did, you were blessed. You, that's, a, that's a real blessing, I was, and, and, and that's a real blessing to have a, a Christian home to grow up in. Uh, and, and, and as you grow up, though I've discovered that a lot of my friends and, and others that as we grew up in Christian homes, we got to be teenagers and young adults, and I watched a lot of my friends walk away doubting. They, they'd grown up in the same youth groups that I had, 
uh, we'd had the same materials, the same worship experiences, and yet they were walking away from the faith. They were saying, I'm not sure that I believe that. And so there was doubt that was coming in. Maybe you grew up in a non-Christian home. And you had parents who maybe said something like, you know, all this spiritual stuff is not really all that important, and one religion's about as good as another, and Christianity probably is not any better than anything else, and you'll probably figure it out someday. And if you have that family, if you have that set of parents, I got to tell you, that can be a good thing for you. So how can that be good? Well, it can be good because it can cause something to click in you that says, I want to know the truth, and you can. When you say, you know what, I want to find out what's real. I want to find out, are all these religions the same? Or is there something special about Christianity? You are going to find the truth about Jesus Christ. And I can say that as a certainty. And you say, well, how can you say that as a certainty? Because God has made some promises. God has made some promises to us. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, verses 13 and 14, God said, if you look for me wholeheartedly, you'll find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. Not I might be found by you. Not that maybe you could be, or if you pay enough money, you can. He just says, if you are serious about this and you look for me, you're going to find me. In the book of Psalm, and this one's not, Proverbs, rather, is not in your sermon notes because, again, there's way more verses than there are spaces on the piece of paper there. Um, God said, uh, I love, excuse me, he said, those who search will find, will, will surely find me. And so if you grew up not being taught anything about God and not thinking anything about Jesus or Christianity, if you are serious about searching for him, you will find him. And then maybe you were raised in that Christian home and, and you heard that Bible being taught all along uh, about God's word and, and about his son, Jesus Christ, and then you begin to doubt, like many of my friends did, uh, because, and, and, and then I want you to know that can be a good thing too because now you need to search on your own. Because I will I'll let you in a little secret. And for a lot of parents in here, I'll let you in a little secret. Your faith has to be your own. Your children's faith has to be their own. You cannot live their faith for them. Your parents cannot live their faith for you. This is not a, my parents were good Christians, so I must be one too. Somewhere along the way, you have to come to the point where you have to decide on your own. That's where doubt becomes a good thing sometimes. Because a lot of times we grew up in a Christian home and we just assume that we're Christians because of who my parents and my grandparents were, or my great-grandparents were, and we have this generational thing going on. But guess what? That generation thing can, can stop right dead with you if you don't have a faith of your own. And that faith, as you begin to look at that, has to come from, from within you. And so that becomes a good thing because it keeps you moving forward. Now, I know that today is Palm Sunday. We've talked about it. And, and my sermon only has the most small things to do with Palm Sunday. Because we're going to ignore in this sermon the big point of, of Palm Sunday. That's why we showed you the video at the beginning, so you don't think that we don't even believe in Palm Sunday. But Palm Sunday, when you say that, people say, oh, yeah, that's that when, when, when Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey and, and everybody is, is cheering for him, there's adulation and the king is here and, 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 it's, and all this stuff's going on. Yeah, that's, that's Palm Sunday. And we're not talking about that. We've already talked about it enough today. Because by the time... By the time Palm Sunday comes, Jesus has been not hanging around around Jerusalem very much because there are wanted posters for him all over the town. They're hanging up on all the, on all the telephone posts and they're, on, and, and they're in the, the post office on the wall because the Jewish leaders have said, if you know where Jesus is, come and tell us so we can kill him. So for several weeks, he's been staying away. He hasn't been there. 
And then chapter 11 and John comes along. So I said we're in chapter 20, but we're going to be in chapter 11 to start with. John, John chapter 11 comes along, and you can turn there if you want or not. It doesn't really matter at this point, but, uh, but um, Jesus has a very good friend. He's left the area of Jerusalem uh, and, and Bethany, and he's gone out uh, on the other side of the Jordan River, and he's hanging out there because it's relatively safe. And it's not his time yet to go to the cross. He's going to be killed, but he's not going to be killed until he's ready, until the time is right. So he's, he's on the other side. He gets word that, that his very good friend Lazarus has died in chapter 11, and you know the story. Then he says, okay, we're going to go back, and his, and his disciples say, are you sure you want to go there? You know, you got a, you, you've got a price on your head. Are you sure you want to go? And he, and he says, we're going to go. And so he goes. And what does he do in, in chapter 11? Four days after his good friend Lazarus has died, he shows up, and he raises him from the dead. And the Bible even tells us that that is the, the, the last of seven miraculous signs that Jesus Christ will do that glorify God, that point to the fact that he is the Messiah. And so, so he raises Lazarus from the dead, and, and, and that was a great thing. And we read uh, in, in 11, John 11, verse 45, many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. Mary, remember, uh, and Martha were the brothers of Lazarus. And so he's there, and he raises, Jesus, he raises Lazarus from the dead, and everybody says, whoa, never saw this before. And the interesting thing is that, that they move the stone away and Lazarus comes out of the grave. He calls him out, but he's still wrapped up like a mummy. And I always wonder what that was like to see him, like being on a hoverboard, I guess, coming out. Because I don't know how she would have gotten out because he was wrapped up like this, not be able to move anything. They had to unwrap him so that he could start moving around again. And so he does that, and so there's these people who believe. And, and now I want you to hit the fast-forward button from John chapter 11, um, uh, uh, you know, a short while before Palm Sunday, and now we're going to, we're going to hit it um, to six days before the crucifixion. So now we're at Palm Sunday. Now, we're, now we've seen Lazarus be raised from the dead. Now we're at Palm Sunday. All the hoopla, the adulation, glory to the God in the highest. You know, this is, this, is, this, is, this is God's son. This is the Emmanuel. He's coming to be among us. And, and, and we're looking for your kingdom to come. And all this is going on. Have you ever stopped to think about what we don't normally talk about on Palm Sunday? Have you ever asked yourself the question, who are these people? Where do they come from? Everybody's been wanting to kill him, and now all of a sudden they're welcoming him as the, as the king. So where did these people come from? Who are they? Who are these people who were there? Well, if we look at John chapter 12, verses 17 and 18, it says, many in the crowd, this is, this is on the day of, of Palm Sunday, many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb. So a short while late, earlier in Bethany, they had been there. They were friends and acquaintances of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and they had been there when God calls Lazarus out of the tomb, and he hovers right out, and they unwrap him and say, man, he's alive, but we know he'd been dead for four days because he would stinketh, as King James would say. And yet he's alive. And so here's all these people who have said that, and it says, and they were telling others about it. That's the re that was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign. That was interesting. So the people who were there that day, when Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, some in the crowd were already believers. They'd already made up their mind that this is the Son of God, that this is the Messiah. But they were really probably a small part of the contingent of people that were there. Then there were those who were doubters. They were doubters. Um, they were coming to get more information. Even, I think, some of those who had seen Lazarus raised from the dead probably still had some doubts. They probably doubting, you know, should I have had that piece of, that, maybe it was just a bad piece of pizza I ate, and I just imagined that I saw this guy come out of the tomb. 
It was just a bad dream. I don't know. And so they have some doubts, and they just want to get it clarified. On the other hand, some of those uh, were there who had their minds already closed. They'd already made up their minds, and they weren't going to accept Jesus for anything, and they just had unbelief. They had unbelief. Unbelief is when you say, I have already decided, and you're not going to change my mind on this. The religious leaders in Jesus' day were those who had unbelief. Nothing Jesus did was going to change their mind. They, excuse me, they, were, they had disbelief. I didn't say unbelief, disbelief. They were, there was this disbelief in their minds. Uh, in John chapter 12, verse 19, it says, Then the Pharisees said to each other, There's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. There's nothing we can say, nothing we change. We don't believe him, but what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Look at what Jesus is doing here. And then in John 12, 19, it says, Then the Pharisees said to each other, There's nothing we can do. And I want you to hit the fast-forward button right there. From Palm Sunday to six days later. Or eight days later, rather. Let's go to the evening of the resurrection. From Sunday to Sunday, eight days. Sunday late in the evening to a room, a private room, where Jesus' disciples have gathered John and, and Peter have already seen the empty tomb, but none of them have seen Jesus. They're hearing the stories, they're hearing the stories of, of, of what Jesus did, that he rose from the dead, but they've not seen him. And today, we're going to look at the story of one man who became famous for his doubts. We call him Doubting Thomas. Now, the label's a little bit unfair for Thomas to be called Doubting Thomas. Because it, the totality of his life, when you consider it all, was really pretty remarkable. I mean, this is a guy who, who followed Jesus faithfully for three years as his disciple. And then he did not betray Jesus as Judas did in those last days of, of Jesus' life. He did not betray Jesus as, as Peter did uh, and deny him uh, during those last hours of his life. He just had some doubts about the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And after those doubts were resolved, we're told that he became a leader in the Christian church uh, until his death. And according to, to, to tradition, Christian tradition, he became a missionary and went to India, where he served until he was martyred there and died. And yet, 2,000 years later, we still call him Doubting Thomas. We still call him Doubting Thomas. So here's the story. After the resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples in that room, and he, and, he, and he shows them his wounds to prove that he really is alive. And so in John chapter 20 now, in verse 19, it says this, That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Oh. Oh, Jesus, it's you. They didn't open the door. He didn't ring the doorbell. It wasn't one of those ring things where they said, oh, look, my phone says it's Jesus outside. We thought he was in the tomb. He just was there in the midst of them. And, and suddenly he's standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. And verse 20 goes on to say, as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side, and they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And again he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And then he breathed on them. Instead, receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. But Thomas wasn't there. Thomas wasn't in the group. In John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29, this is what we read. One of the disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. So after that meeting, on that Sunday night of the resurrection, during that week, they were telling Thomas, Thomas, Jesus came, we saw him. 
We saw this, the holes in his hands. We saw the hole in his side, and we got to see it. We got to see those things. He's alive. And Thomas was having problems with that. He replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. So hit fast forward one more time. Eight more days. One week later, the week after resurrection, Sunday, same place, same people there, except now, Thomas is there. Thomas makes it to that one. And it goes on to say in verse 26, eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked. But suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Verse 29, Jesus said, You believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. The story of Doubting Thomas tells us three things that I think we need to really hone in on today about dealing with doubt how do we deal with doubt so three truths that will help you deal with your doubts uh, looking at what happened with Thomas that 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 evening first of all I want you to see that God doesn't abandon you when you have doubts there will be times when all of us will have a doubt about something and God is not going to abandon you just because you say you know God I'm struggling with this right now I'm struggling to believe this I'm not sure about this And so, don't think that God is just going to turn his back on you and walk away. That is not what we see him doing in Scripture. That is not how he deals with doubt for those who are are serious and who are honest about that doubt that they have. So, let me share doubting truth number one with you today, and that is simply that doubt is not the same as disbelief. Disbelief says, I've shut my mind off, and I am not going to believe it. God can't do anything to convince me. I am not going to believe it. Thief number one on the cross. If you're Jesus, if you're the Son of God, make yourself come down, make the angels come and take care of us. Go ahead and do it. See, I told you you couldn't do it. You're not the guy. He'd already decided. He'd been killed, and he's still deciding Jesus isn't who he says he is. And disbelief. Why didn't that guy get saved? Because he didn't want to believe. That's disbelief. And the Bible says if someone has disbelief, they've shut their minds to the gospel truth, and they're going to they're gonna die in that disbelief, most likely. And you're not going to talk them out of that disbelief. So doubt is not the same as disbelief. It's simply, doubt is simply seeking further evidence to confirm the validity of what appears to be and or professes to be true. It just says, God, here's something that, that I read in the Bible and I'm struggling with it, but you said it's true and I'm just trying to come to, to grips with that. So would you help me in that? And so that's okay. That's what that doubt is. And we're told that we can, you know, we saw people saying to Jesus, help us in our unbelief. He didn't say, get out of my sight. He said, okay, we'll deal with that. And so unbelief says, I just, I just have some questions here that I would like to get answered. Maybe you're unsaved, maybe you're saved, but there's some things you still need to want answered. And so that's what unbelief is. And so there are organizations, however, that simply will not, tolerate doubt on any level. I, you read about them almost every day in the, in, the, in the news, or you hear about them on the news almost every day, but um, there was one case where a young lady, she was a sophomore in high school, a sophomore in high school, and she was in her biology class, and, and she was listening, and, and Christianity Today reported on this. Um, this young lady um, was 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 questioning evolution. They were teaching evolution, and, and her name was uh, Anna Harvey, uh, and she was a straight-A sophomore in Lawrence, Kansas, and, and she simply raised her hand, and she said, uh, excuse me, to the, to the teacher, to the professor who was there, um, when are we going to learn about creationism? When you're teaching us 
evolution, when do we get to hear about creationism? That's all she wanted to do, and she was very respectful in doing that. And this was his answer. Uh, He said this. um, He says... It says that her teacher exploded. When are you going to stop believing that nonsense your parents teach you? The fact is, if you doubt the veracity of some scientific theories in certain intellectual circles, get ready to be raked over the coals because doubts are not allowed. I read about a young guy, college student in New York, one of the universities in New York, last fall was kicked out of, was, was, was put on suspension from college. He was in a teacher preparation uh, course. Uh, going to be a, a, a school teacher. And he said, he made a statement, not even in class, not even on campus, he made it on like Facebook or one of those kinds of things, or I think it was Instagram, this was an Instagram account. And he just said, men cannot be women and women cannot be men. And they suspended him and said he is intolerant, he is, he, is not, he is not qualified to ever be a teacher of children, and he's not on board with what we're teaching, and he's out of here. And he just got reinstated. But they said he has to go through, he has to go through re-indoctrination training. And he said, oh, no, he doesn't. And he's not going to do that. And now he's suing the university for what they did. And so we have all these things. And so what happens is, but we do the same thing as churches sometimes. Churches come along and they say, we'll tell you what to believe. And if we want your opinion, we'll tell you what it is. And we're not that much different sometimes than those people that we get angry about. We have to understand that everybody has to come to faith individually. And it's not mom and dad's religion, it's not our church's religion, it's not our faith, it's not parents' faith, it's their faith. It is a personal, real encounter with Jesus Christ. And we can't do that for them. They have to come to that. And God says, I want you to work through that process and I will work through that process with you. And when it was obvious that Thomas was having trouble with understanding that Jesus had risen from the dead, Jesus shows up on that second Sunday evening, and he doesn't say to Thomas, Thomas, you really blew it. I am so disappointed in you. I can't believe who you are. I'm changing your name right now to Doubting Thomas. No. Didn't do that. Didn't rake him over the coals. He just said, Thomas, I know it's hard. But Thomas, I want you to do something. I want you to understand I love you. And I'm going to help you. Reality number two is I want you to know not only does God not abandon you when you doubt, understand that the Christian faith can withstand intense scrutiny. It can, under, it can withstand intense scrutiny. <clears throat> you know, if you're, you're looking to invest money with some company, and the business owner tells you, you know, we are really a healthy company financially. We have probably $2 million in the bank. We have so much money, and I know we have money because we have, yeah, we have checks left over in our bank book. <laughs> so we have a lot of money. If that's what the guy is telling you, we have, we have checks left over in our bank book, so we must be financially fiscal. You don't want to deal with them. Or they'll tell you, we do have that $2 million in the bank. Well, of course, the bank only tells us we have $50,000, but we're, we think we have $2 million, and we're probably right more often than the bank is. Then you don't want to do anything with them either. That's not a sign of a healthy bank. But when somebody says to you, you know, we are healthy fiscally, we have three CPAs who are on our staff full-time, and they each deal with one-third of, of our organization, and they check everything to the penny, and then every year we have a major audit that's, that's outside of our company, 
that's a company that you can say, yeah, I could go with you. I could go with you. And some religions are based as on things as flimsy as we have checks left over, so we must be okay. What we're saying must be okay. The foundation is flimsy. But that's not the way it is with, with Christianity. God says you can put it to the test, and that's all right. You go ahead and just put it to the test. And, and, and our doubting truth number two this morning is this, that no matter how closely you examine the claims of Christ, he always passes the test. When, no matter how you look at him, he is going to pass the test with flying colors. He said, we are not based on a flimsy foundation. And so Jesus says he can endure um, scrutiny because he is God, and his kingdom isn't based on these half-baked ideas that, that just come and go in the night. These are things that have passed the test of time. And, and over the years, in fact, there have been a number of theories about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's three major big ones, and there's a whole bunch of them, but, but there's, there's three major ones, and a lot of the others kind of fit inside of those. And, and you ever wonder what, what somebody who is an atheist or an agnostic or, or an unbeliever would say about the, the resurrection of Jesus, who have chosen not to believe or are even trying to figure it out? These are some things they've come up with. One is the, the spiritual re- resurrection theory. And the spiritual resurrection theory is simply this, that the, that, the, that the disciples never really did see Jesus, but they saw an imposter. That he was just an imposter, uh, excuse me, wrong one, that, that they saw a ghost. They saw a ghost of Jesus. That, that he was not in the flesh, he was a ghost. And he did show up in the middle of a room, which he hadn't done before. But I haven't seen a lot of ghosts in my time other than like, like Casper. And, and Casper, everybody tried to touch him and they fell through him. But Jesus is here in their midst and they're not falling through him. And then there is the, there's the, the imposter theory and that's what they did. They, they'll say Jesus, the Jesus' disciples never really saw him. They saw this imposter and that the body of Jesus was stolen by another man, and someone, then another man pretended to be him. Um, there's a story that, that Herod did that, that Herod was, was really afraid if he killed Jesus. Um, this is the guy who's saying, render into Caesar's what is Caesar's. And if Caesar finds out you killed somebody who's promoting him, that wasn't going to go well for your career. Might not even go well for your lifespan. And so they were thinking, well, then he, he didn't really kill Jesus. He told Jesus, they told, he told the, 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 the Roman soldiers, just almost kill him, and then when no one's looking, switch him out with somebody else. And then, then we, we can tell Rome we didn't kill that guy. He's still running around. And so, but they think that, you know, really he was just an imposter. Somebody was just an imposter pretending to be him. And, um, and, and so you got to think that this is an imposter who was able to, to fool his closest followers and even his own mother. And then there's the swoon theory. And this is maybe my favorite. Um, the swoon theory is the idea that Jesus didn't really die on the cross at all, um, that he just passed out. And even though the Romans were really good at killing people on the cross, they were really skilled at that, that somehow they made a mistake and they thought Jesus was dead, but he wasn't. And so they wrapped him up, stuck him in a tomb, and let him be stuck in a tomb. And then three days later, after all these hours have gone by, um, that and, and in spite of the 36 hours earlier being beaten and stabbed and pierced and with nails and, and, and those, thrown, those thorns crammed down on his brow and, and being stabbed in his side and, and all those things, that somehow he woke up. He was almost dead, but he was able to wake up, garner enough strength to move a one-ton stone out of the way and then sneak by the guards who are guarding the tomb. And then somehow, being able to wobble enough to, to somehow, you know, with feet that had nails stuck through them into the cross, and all the pain that would be with that, to be able to convince somebody, hey, I'm alive and I don't hurt. It doesn't seem real probable, does it? 
But even if we could accept everything up until that point in the swoon theory, the weakest link in it is that it would have been possible for him to convince the people who were going to see him that he had never died because of how wrecked his body would have been at that point. So when he appears to Thomas that evening in the upper room, he says, Thomas, come here. Touch me. Touch me. Put, put your hands there in the holes of my hand. Reach over here on my side and put your hand there in that big gash where they put the spear in my side. Go ahead, do it. Jesus' physical body was the evidence of the truth of his resurrection. And he didn't, didn't hesitate to allow Thomas to examine the evidence in order to know the truth. Doesn't matter what you decide to do, how intense of a scrutiny you want to give the claims of Jesus and the claims of Christianity, it will always stand the test. And God says, oh, and I said, we're not going there. No. He says, come here. Look. Touch. Let's examine this. It's okay. And then thirdly, after, the all, after all the evidence is in, I want you to know it still requires faith. After you've examined all that evidence, it still at some point requires faith. You cannot get away from that. When Thomas touched Jesus, Jesus said, don't be faithless any longer, believe. Now is the time to believe. The implication there is that Thomas, even though he is touching the resurrected Jesus, Jesus has debunked all those three things, that he was a ghost, that he was an imposter, or that, that somehow he had never died, but he, that he just kind of somehow survived. He had, he had done all those things. See, you can, you can see me. You can touch me. This is me, Jesus. We spent three years together, and I'm resurrected. But even with that, there was a possibility that down the road, there would be sometimes when Thomas made doubt. That's the implication that's here, because there always has to be room for doubt. Um, the, the question is, which, which of those are you going to accommodate? Are you going to, are you going to, to look at the spiritual nature um, of things and say, okay, I don't know that I'm going to give any room for doubt, or are you going to say, okay, I'm going to accommodate that doubt? But the doubt's always going to be there. And if you're not inclined to believe, many of the, the miracles of Jesus can be explained away, like when he fed 5,000 people uh, with, with, you know, with, with you know, five loaves of bread and two fish. Um, there are those who say, oh, he didn't really do that. That was 5,000 people plus their, their wives and their children, so maybe upwards of 12,000, 15,000 people that were there, and you just could not do that. And so obviously when those 15,000 people saw that little boy come up with, with, with two fish and five little loaves of bread, they felt really guilty. They said, man, we can't let that little rascal outshine us. And so they all said, oh, you know what? I brought a lunch. I really did have food. And so the ones who brought food started sharing it with people around them, and suddenly everybody ate, and there were 12 basketfuls left over. And so they tried to explain it away that way. Or you can look at the fact that Jesus um, came to his disciples who were out on the water one night, and you'll read that this week if you haven't read it, if you're reading through uh, the last parts of John. And they, and, and Jesus sees them out there struggling in the storm, and so he walks out there to them. And, and I have a pastor friend who, who was a beach pastor, and he was sharing that story, and one of the guys that was there, some, some, one of the surfer dudes said, oh, he, wasn't, he didn't do that, he didn't walk out there. He couldn't have done that. But I tell you how I think it happened. I think he surfed out there. <laughs> My friend said, are you serious? A surfboard? He said, well, maybe he could have body surfed. You know, you can try to, you can try to, to speak away and, and theorize all you want on the miracles of Jesus, and there's always going to be room for doubt. But it has to be there. Why does it have to be there? 
Because if there is no room for doubt, then there's no room for faith. Faith isn't needed anymore. And yet, we know that there has to be faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, or 2, 8 in this case, says God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It is the gift of God. That's faith. You believed. That was faith. And then in Hebrews eleven six 6, it says it's impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. And so God says, I am never going to take the faith element about it out of your life. You may have trusted me yesterday, and you'll trust me next month, but right now, today, what you're facing, there has to be an element of faith in it if you're going to believe me in who I am. If you want to be saved today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, there has to be an element of faith there that says, I know what the Bible says, and I know what we've heard today, I know what we're singing today, but there has to be that element of faith that says, but still I have to just give everything I am to you and trust you and you alone, Jesus, and that's a big ask. Or to go and sit at the side of the loved one who's dying. And say, Jesus, they're yours. This is my parent. This is my sibling. This is my neighbor. This is a coworker. And they have expressed faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. So, God, would you grant them mercy? And would you be with me as I walk through these moments with them? That's faith. God doesn't take those moments away. He doesn't say, I will explain everything so fully that you will never have to have faith. He said it is just the opposite. I will never explain everything fully so that you must have faith. Faith will always be required. You'll have to make decisions every day that are faith-based. Sometimes you will doubt, but God will not turn his back. He will invite you into this relationship that is real and personal, and he'll say, now, would you trust me right now? Right now in making this choice, and I won't desert you. Thomas took that step. Thomas took that step. <laughs> he said, my Lord and my God. And, and he believed Jesus at that moment. Didn't say he wouldn't doubt some other things down the road, but when he, he accepted Jesus as the risen Savior at that point. And his life showed it in the way he lived the rest of his life. But let me give you one final thought here about Thomas. Verse 29 again, Jesus said to him after he said, My Lord and my God, he said, You believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. And, and too often... I've heard sermons that say Jesus was, now Jesus is ragging on, on Thomas. That he's, that he's kind of beating him down for not having faith to start with before Jesus showed up. I mean, Thomas only said to his, to his fellow believers, to the other disciples, before he'd seen Jesus during that week, he just said, I just want to see what you guys saw and I want to, and I want to feel what you guys felt. That was honest doubt. Jesus is not doing that. I don't think, I don't think that Jesus is really talking to Thomas at all. I mean, he's talking to him physically, but I think he's addressing somebody else. I think he's addressing you and me. I think he's addressing us. Because there will never be that time when we will be able to touch in this lifetime the hands of Jesus and, and the scar in his side. Not physically. And yet we can still believe. We can still have that same belief even as Thomas was able to do. And if you have doubts, I really hope you're not ignoring them. You're not going to ignore them. Um, because if you'll take that step of faith by trusting Jesus, he's not going to leave you hanging. He's not going to walk away from you. The repentant thief on the cross, Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? How do you know about a kingdom? He read the sign. This is Jesus. The 
king of the Jews. Pilate was nice enough to give him an invitation. Here he is, believe. And the man did. And Jesus didn't say, man, you just spent your whole life being a crud. You're dying here on a cross. You're a thief. You're, you're a no good. And now you want to be saved? He said, yeah. Because I have faith. And Jesus honored that faith. And Jesus said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. God's not going to leave you hanging. Let me share one more truth. Doubting truth number three today. Like Thomas, friends, you can stop doubting and believe. You can stop doubting and believe. The last two verses that finish up this passage in, in, in John chapter 20 say this, in verses 30 and 31. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these were written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Let's pray together. Father, right now, we just want to acknowledge that we only have access to you because of Jesus Christ, because of the power in his name. Father, right now we pray that Jesus would be glorified in all that we would do. In the decisions that we're going to make, maybe somebody has been doubting. They're doubting the whole concept of Jesus coming as a baby and living a life of perfection and still being God at the same time. Maybe they're still doubting that, that he would go to the cross and die, that God could die on the cross, that God the Father would send his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place, that he would rise again three days later, victorious over the grave, never to die again, eternally, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, offering life to us. Boy, those are big, big calls. Father, we pray that today, if there's even one person in this room, one person online who is hearing that, Father, we pray that if that's their doubt, they would simply say, Jesus, I just want to have enough faith to believe that. I want to believe that you are the Son of God who died in my place. If you are, would you come into my life and forgive me of my sins? And Father, we thank you that you will honor that. You won't turn them away because of their previous doubt. Maybe even their doubts in asking, but they're asking. So, Father, thank you that you honor that faith. Now, Father, we pray that your will we've done in each of our hearts and lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name.